I, uh, you know, Christmas is very much about lights and, and candles and things like that as we celebrate it. And uh, I was thinking about that this week and remembering uh, one of my favorite experiences with light, which was just in the last few years, maybe four years ago now, I got to put 10, 10 shop lights in my basement. <laughs> Such a blessing. Uh, and they're not the fluorescent kind, you know, that go, eh, you know, and flicker. They're the LED kind, right? 10,000 hours of life these things are supposed to have. And I just daisy-chained them around the room, and it made it so bright down in the basement. The, it was the brightest room in the house, which was really encouraging for me because, you know, there's some areas of our basement that have some stuff in them, and without those lights, it's kind of dark, and it's kind of scary. <laughs> you ever get creeped out in the basement? Especially when it's dark? Those lights were a blessing, man. But the thing is, I don't think it's been 10,000 hours, but some of them are starting to flicker. And of course, it's not the ones right at the bottom of the stairs, it's the ones in the back corners. And they're like, flicker. You know, they don't make that buzzing noise, but they do everything else that makes it for like a scary kind of movie setting, right? You go downstairs, it's like, you know, the worst is you get used to it, and then all of a sudden the light turns on. Or maybe you're in the back and the light turns off. Flicker, low light. Well, as we turn to Isaiah 9, another Advent passage today, as we turn there, the language is of light and dark. A promise of darkness going away. And not only darkness going away, but feelings of anguish, of worthlessness, of, of fear, and more. Because really whether it's the basement or some other area, we all kind of have a fear of the dark within us. It doesn't necessarily go away when we grow up. But we usually don't admit that until we're confronted by the darkness or when the lights start to flicker in the corners, in those dark places. And so as, we, as we're headed a week away from Christmas, as we're headed into a new year, what I want you to think about as we look at God's Word today is how is your light doing? Where in your life are there some flickerings of the light? Where in your life do you need a little more light? Where is the darkness creeping in? And as we look at this passage in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, I want you to look for the hope that God offers in his precious promises. So would you read with me Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. This is God's holy word. Isaiah 9, 1. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times... He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. 
Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your promises. And we pray that as we look at it, it would be more than ink on paper, more than pixels on our screens, more than sound waves hitting our eardrums. But it would be the light and life and hope that we need. We pray you would do that because we come in the name of Jesus, looking at your word, believing in the power of your spirit. Meet us here, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. So when, when my basement got really bright, I, I began to like going down there. You know, we, we had uh, put some French drains in there and it was dried out for a while and now it was bright and everything. In fact, in the early days of the pandemic, when we were all locked in and shut in, right, I would go down there uh, and, and we had one of the extra chairs out of our big van and I would sit in that and I had a little side table that we had, we weren't using, and I would put my laptop up on there, and I would do my Zoom meetings from there, you know, I would come down early in the morning and read the scripture before it was light outside, it was just so bright, it was amazingly bright, but then those lights started flickering, and I find I'm not as excited about going in the basement anymore, you know, there, there's, there, there's some dark corners, it doesn't take long for things to change and for the darkness to start creeping in and, and for it instantly almost to have an impact, a change in your mindset. And so as we, as we look at this passage, I, I do, I, I want you to remember that Isaiah is writing to God's people of old under the inspiration of the Spirit. This is probably around 730 years before the birth of Jesus. And he's writing to God's people, God inspiring him, because they've made some poor choices. They are uh, they're heading for darker times, and they are in the middle of some dark times, and it's going to get worse if you were to go back and read through the end of Isaiah chapter 6 up through the end of chapter 8, right before our passage. You would see that, that, that God says it's going to get bad. In fact, the people that Isaiah is writing to in the northern kingdom of Israel are going to be taken into captivity within the next 10 or so years from his writing. But he writes now at this point to give them hope, saying dark times are going to come. It's going to be challenging. In fact, it already is, but it will get better. God promises it will get better like light shining into darkness, the promises of God are meant to bring hope into difficult situations, into every situation that we face. That God's promises will bring hope so that we are, we are not completely overwhelmed. And so that when we feel the pressure of discouragement and are weighted down, we know it will get better it might take a little while, but God has promised. And there is hope in that. There is a lot of hope in that, even the darkest and most difficult times and places. So how do we access that hope, though? Really, how, how do we engage that hope? Isaiah here in this passage gives us two things in particular. And the first is this, to find that hope. Listen to what God has said. 
If you want more hope in your life, listen to what God has said. Because what God has said is certain. What God has said is certain. Look, look at these promises again, these definite promises that God makes. Verse 1, there will be no more gloom. Continue a little later. He shall make it glorious. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Those are future-oriented things. Those are promises of God. They are certain. Just on the surface alone, if you look at those promises, they're, they're encouraging and they're wonderful. But if you were to dig a little deeper into the grammar and the language here, they become even more certain. Because these words are, in the original language, expressed as past tense. They're that certain about what's going to happen in the future, that God speaks in the past tense. Literally, it would sound more like this. Verse 2, the people who are walking, that's, you know, in the present, they are walking in darkness saw a great light. The people walking in darkness saw, past tense, a great light. Those who are living in a dark land, the light has shone, or the light has shined on them. This is an interesting feature of very often how God speaks in his promises. That We don't speak like that, and it's kind of strange. And so actually when they translate from Hebrew into English, they have to adapt it. Because otherwise we would be like, I don't understand. So they're interpreting a little bit to say, you know what? These aren't past tenses, actually. It's just something that is so certain. God's promise is so certain that he speaks as if it has already happened. Verse 1, later on, he made it glorious, is the way it literally reads there by the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. God speaks with certainty. Listen to what God has said. And he says, this is what will happen, and what God has said is good. What God has said is good. The promises are good. Look at verse 1 again. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Gloom is essentially darkness, a, a deep darkness. Uh, think of a you know cloudy night with no moon, that kind of darkness. That's gloom. It's very dark. Anguish has the sense of distress or pressure, constraint, being confined, that sort of just oh, feeling all of the pressure. Verse 2 has the same theme. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You know, in the midst of darkness and suffering and anguish, pressure and all the things we face, this promise says, something good for us. 
God always speaks that way. He's always speaking for our good. At the same time, for His glory, for His reputation. And He speaks here about walking in darkness. And the idea of walking, that's about how you live. And again, writing to a people who had made some bad choices, who were worshiping false gods, who were not obeying God's commands. In particular, we saw in Isaiah 7 how the king would not listen to Isaiah's counsel. Even their leadership is not doing well. So walking in, is about how you live, and if they're walking in darkness, it, it essentially means that, that you don't see where you're going. You, you don't see the path. You're going to wind up at least banging your shins on something, right? Maybe you step on some Legos in the dark, uh, whatever the spiritual equivalent of that is, right? You, you, you trip, you stumble, you fall if you're walking in the darkness. That's the image that the Lord is using here. They're walking in darkness, and the promise is good because it says God will give them light. He'll, he'll make their life the equivalent of my basement, right? He will shine into it that you see what's going on. Light is good. Light exists because God said at the beginning of creation, let there be light. Very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1-3, he said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. Light exists because God said, let it be. And what God has said is good. It's interesting because God himself does not experience darkness. It's irrelevant for him. Psalm 139, 12 is just one example. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. you know, God, God doesn't see darkness. God just sees all that is. Darkness means nothing. But we experience darkness. It's very relevant for us. By God's design, in fact. God created the sun during the day to rule over the day that, that we might experience life with hardly any darkness in that period. He created the moon to reflect that light at night, to rule over the night, so to speak, that we might not be completely overwhelmed by the dark. But he allowed dark the physical reality of no light, that idea into our vocabulary, into our minds, into our world, that we might understand, even before sin came into the world, God allowed darkness as a physical thing that we might have the symbols of the biggest problem we face. That we might understand that, that there is another way then we might see the problems with darkness, the lack of light, and the potential for darkness to take over. Not merely physically, but more importantly, in our hearts, in our lives, in the world around us. We might walk in the dark. We do that when, when we don't know what's right and what is wrong. In some ways, little children are just, they don't know, and they need some light 
their parents will shine it into them. The world tries to shine some light into them. When we don't know right from wrong, we're walking in the dark. We walk in the dark when we choose to hide because what we're doing we know deep down is wrong. We tend to do it at night in the privacy of our own homes or in a secret place. We walk in the dark when we know we're doing wrong. We walk in the dark when we feel alone. We walk in the dark when we feel unsupported, misunderstood. And sometimes that's because we choose the darkness. Sometimes it's because the darkness comes upon us. We don't want it, but it comes anyway. Either way, being in the dark is about the hardest time to do what God says is most necessary, which is to listen to what God has said, to allow his light to penetrate into the darkness. And as we're in the darkness, that is the hardest time for us to do what's necessary, to come and listen to what he has to say. You know, if you think about it, when when you have chosen the darkness because you're doing something that is wrong, it's hard to flip the switch and say, I I need to listen to what God has said. Because you know, down inside, as soon as you flip that switch, your mess is going to be obvious. Right? In the dark, you can pretend everything's okay, you know? But really, everything is all disorganized and a mess. It's reeking of toxicity and waste, you know, all around you. But if you keep it dark enough, maybe you won't notice. But if you listen to what God has said, you're saying basically, Lord, shine some light into this, and the mess is going to be obvious. You're basically asking the one who is light and has no darkness to expose you and your mess. That's a really hard thing to do. But if you listen to what God has said, you'll realize, you know what? Darkness is already irrelevant for him. He sees the mess. He sees through the darkness. He already sees. He sees more clearly than you and I do. And he sees it. So listen to what he said, that what he has said might be a lamp to your feet, a light to your path. That no matter what the mess is, he might guide you to navigate through it. When darkness sometimes comes upon you, it's hard to do anything. If you think about depression, the dark night of the soul, we don't have the inner motivation, we don't have the joy in in normal things that we have had. And you can know the switch is right there. You can know that the Word of God is light. What God has said should be listened to. You might even turn the light on and maybe you read what God has said. But still, it doesn't move you. It all feels like darkness. And again, remember, the darkness is irrelevant to God. No matter how you are feeling, He still sees you. And maybe you don't see him. Maybe you don't feel him. Maybe you're not experiencing him, but he still sees you. And he's concerned. This is the one whose word brings light. The one who created light. So listen to what God has said. And maybe in that situation, it it comes from Bible reading. Maybe it comes from your memory. Maybe it comes from a friend. 
if at all possible, listen to what God has said. And that brings us to the second facet here that goes along with the first one. We, we not only want to listen to what God has said, but if we really want hope in the midst of the darkness, we have to look at or look for what God will provide. Listen to what God has said and look for what God will provide. And what he provides is the end of suffering. God will provide the end of suffering. The description of what the people are experiencing in our passage is very interesting. Look at verse 1 again. Chapter 9, verse 1. There will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, with contempt. But then it will be glorious. God is promising the end of suffering. You know, the, the language here, it, the, the experience for them is very interesting. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, you probably don't remember where they are. Maybe you, maybe you could picture them in a, in a map of Israel that maybe someday you had seen in your Bible or somewhere online or something. But not top-tier Bible places and names. Not names, actually, that most people will name their kids when they're thinking about names. Oh, hey, Zebulun. Hey, Naphtali. I, I've met people who have. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's not typical. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, they were two of the tribes when God uh, led the people into the promised land and divided the land up for them. These are two of the tribes. You remember the descendants of Abraham, 12 descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. He had 12 sons. God divided the land among 11 of them. One of them the, from Levi would live among all of the others, and so God divided Ephraim uh, or Manasseh into two tribes. So there's now still 12. And he divided the land, and, and Zebulun and Naphtali are two of the four that were all the way up in the north. Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Issachar. And I remember those because I learned in seminary like 20 years ago a, a, a little trick. The zany tribes in the north. Zany, Z-A-N-I. Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali, and Issachar. Those zany northern tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali are two of those. Where are the rest of them? Where's all the action happening? Down in the south of Israel with Judah, Benjamin, and Simeon. Those three tribes that kind of merged together a little bit, but those, those three tribes that got jobs in the south. You with me? J-B-S. Judah, Benjamin, Simeon, jobs in the south. This is the way I remember it. That's, where it. that's where Jerusalem is located, down there. That's where all the action happens. You know, that's where the prophets are touring around. That's where a lot of the miracles happen. That, and then the next region up in the middle me in the middle, Manasseh and Ephraim, those two tribes, half-tribe of Manasseh. And then on the other side of the Jordan, you have the, th the three meager tribes, Manasseh, Gad, and Reuben on the far side of the Jordan. All the action happening anywhere except up in the north. The land, the, when Israel divided between the, the ten tribes going off on the Solomon's son and his foolishness, ten tribes broke away from the north broke away those northern tribes, and then it left the, the southern kingdom, Judah. And in the north, 
all the other tribes, but still, they didn't really move much further north. Their capital was still down there in that land of Manasseh and Ephraim. Still not anywhere near Zebulun and Naphtali. I give you this geography lesson just to think about that, right? That would be the experience of people living in that land. Nobody cares about us. We don't know what's happening down there. All the things you, you, they didn't even know as much about Jerusalem and what happened in all of Israel as you do if you've read your Old Testament. They would know nothing. They would just know that all that stuff happens down there. Nobody cares about us. Think about Washington, D.C. or something, okay? Those people down there, I don't know. We're just trying to hear, you know. And you're in the mountains of Appalachia or something. That's what's going on. That's the experience these folks are having. They get no attention. They're on their own. They're the least well-known. They get hardly any attention. And that's actually the sense of this word contempt. It's to be of no account. Worthless. Trifling. Doesn't matter. That's their experience. Except when the superpowers of the day, especially those in the east, Assyria, Babylon, the Chaldeans, especially Syria at this time, when they would come to attack everywhere else, they would come through the northern land. Though they were on the east, they would follow the trade routes along the river, and they would come through first through Zebulun and Naphtali, Asher, and Issachar. They would experience first the onslaught of war. They would be the front line. And it probably contributed to their lack of esteem. To be neglected. To be on the outskirts. And they would experience gloom and anguish. No one cares. No one sees. No one knows. No one will help. There's no way out. There is suffering. And the Lord says, I will provide an end to suffering. I will bring it to an end. I will provide light. I will give hope. And that is what those who are suffering most need, is hope to persevere, to carry on. And the place where we find it is not in whitewashing and platitudes to say, it'll be okay. It's to say, yeah, it really stinks. God Himself is saying, yes, I treated you as something insignificant and light, but that will change. I will make it glorious. I will make you glorious. In other, in other words, to be honest, one of the things... That if we will listen to what God has said we, and we bring the light into our lives, we can say, this really stinks. We can grieve. We can acknowledge depression. We can acknowledge mental health issues. And we can say, there isn't an easy answer. I know people that I love dearly. And I would want for anything for them to not experience the suffering of depression and discouragement. And you pray, and you read the Bible, and they still are in anguish. They still feel alone and worthless, sometimes cursing the day of their birth, even as Job does 
in his sufferings. And the solution, brothers and sisters, is not to say, stop doing that. The solution is not to say, it'll be okay, but to say, God will bring an end to suffering. And what happens is that God will bring an end to suffering, and that's also going to be the beginning of glory for every one of us. The beginning of glory. Look at verse 1. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. You know, I, I wanted to change it to something else. Isn't that nice? The light just turned on, didn't it? God brought the light. As I said, glory. Is that not beautiful? Amen. Thank you, Lord. Look at the light. God brings the glory like the light shining through stained glass windows on a Sunday morning all of a sudden. God says, I will make it glorious. And I wanted to say something other than the beginning of glory because, you know, glory is one of those churchy words, one of those Bible words, religious words, but man, it is such an important word that you got to learn it if you don't know it. Glory is a word that has to do with honor, with significance, with substance, with weight, with gravity, with importance, all of those kind of things. It is the very opposite of dishonor. It is the very opposite of contempt. That's why God uses it here. He's saying, yes, you are light and trifling, but I'm going to make you heavy. I'm going to make you significant. I'm going to make you weighty. It's a word that is very much and very often describes God. The heavens declare the glory of God, Psalm 19.1. He God is the king of glory, Psalm 24, 7 through 10. God provides glory. God, God is so glorious that Revelation tells us in chapter 21, verses 22 to 27, that there will be no need of the sun or the moon. It doesn't say they won't necessarily be there, but it says well, God will dwell among us as, in his full glory, and we'll be able to withstand it, that we won't need lights, it says. For the glory of God will give light. And God says he will provide that glory to you, to me. Isaiah in chapter 60 will later say, Arise, shine. For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Isaiah 60, verse 2, Behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you, and His glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now, he's immediately speaking of Jerusalem, the pronouns there when it says you and your. That, that is a feminine singular pronoun, most likely speaking of the city of Jerusalem, but always pointing to that particular place where God would meet his people. Pointing to God's people. And God makes that glory, that weight, that significance available to nobodies. Just think about it again, who he's speaking to back in our passage when he says a great light will shine. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, 
the lowly, distant backwater, the place where Jesus grew up, the place where he started to teach and to heal and to love people, Nazareth, Capernaum, Galilee, that's the place that this promise of God is pointing to, those further north lands, those insignificant places, the place where God would have the Savior come and begin his ministry, live and serve. And the attitude in the day when Jesus came to Jerusalem to start ministry, can anything good come out of Nazareth? John 1.16, still, or 1.46, still that view. That's an insignificant place. Nothing good can come out of there. God says, good can come anywhere. I will give my glory to the lowliest. I will come to those who feel insignificant. I want to come to those who are in the darkness. I want to come to those who have chosen that darkness or had it come upon them. I want to be their light. I want them to see the way and what I have provided. I want to lift them up. And he's always done this. God always elevates the lowly to the heights. He doesn't choose those who are high. He humbles them and brings them to the dust. He doesn't choose the beautiful and the strong. He rejected Saul and David's brothers and chose David, the humble shepherd boy. And at Christmas, man, we see this so profoundly. If we really understand what the Christmas story is painting for us, as God sends angel choirs to say glory to God in the highest, he sends these angel choirs to shepherds out in their fields in the middle of night to say what? Go see the Savior that is born to a young lady, a virgin, never been with a man, traveled all these miles from their home up north here to be in Bethlehem for the census. Go see this young lady who has given birth to a Savior who is even now in a stable, sleeping in a feeding trough. And this one will take away the sin of the world. God brings his glory down low into the dark, into the mess, literally into the stinking stable. Matthew saw in that the fulfillment of what Isaiah writes. Matthew 4.13, we read earlier, he came, Jesus came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew 4.14, this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people sitting in darkness saw a great light. Those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There is the humility. There is the path to hope. There is the way. And it's by giving up on yourself and putting your confidence in Jesus to say this is a God who stoops down, who is so glorious and bright, we can never draw near to him, but he comes down to the lowly. Geography shows it. The major shows it. The humble Mary shows it. His work since then throughout history as we look at the greats of Christianity more often than not, they were humble, regular people who believed this God and his promises and found hope despite their circumstances. As Paul would say later in Colossians chapter 1, 
verse 12, we give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We, we will never overcome our darkness, our brokennesses on our own. The way out, the way to find hope in the darkest corners when the light's flickering, as you probably have some areas in your life even right now, the way to find hope in that is to listen to what Isaiah is here saying under the inspiration of the Spirit. Listen to what God has said in His Word. What he has promised. Because it's certain. It's good. Look for the hope that he's going to provide, which is an end to suffering. The beginning of glory. And he offers the foretaste of that to you and I. No matter where we are. The beauty of this is that our circumstances don't need to change. You know, just as my attitude in the basement changed as the lights began to flicker... What made them turn around is that the lights were on, right? That those things happen internally. It was the same basement. Lights on or off. Same basement, right? But when God comes with his light, really what we see is just reality a little better. We see the dangers more clearly. We see the good more clearly. We see the promises. We have hope that as we suffer, we know that there is better to come. And that's the pattern and model of Jesus who came into this world to suffer and to rise again. Make that your hope this season. Brothers and sisters, listen to what God has said and look for what he's going to provide and find that hope. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we live in a dark world, there is dark in the corners of our lives. Lord, sometimes, maybe in the past, it was really bright. The lights flicker. The darkness seeks to take over. But Lord, the beauty of your light and what you have said is that it pushes it back. The beauty of your promises as we think about what you'll provide is that they are guaranteed. They will come. Help us, O Lord, to center that hope on Jesus who has come and is coming again. Give us hope, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.